Mark chapter 7, verse 31 through 37. You know, I thought I was young, but, you know, there's some things that I do that, that give me away as a dad, apparently. So I'm going to tell you what they snap on me. My team snaps on me for a few reasons. Number one, I am just anticipating old age here. I don't like to tie my shoes. I'm just telling you. I really don't. So my favorite type of shoe to wear is a slip-on. I love slip-on shoes. If you ever want to buy me a gift, slip-on shoes are great. Um, but I like, I have a preference for a specific type of uh, slip-on shoe. And here's where they really get at me. At. I like Skechers. Now, I realize that's very 1990s of me. But they're really comfortable. Don't, don't get on me for being a dad. By the way, uh, I, I do know the gender of my baby. So I'm going to announce that in three weeks. Oh, man, there you go. <laughs> uh, Mark chapter 7, verse 31 through 37. Here's what the word of the Lord says. New Living Translation this morning. It says this. And then Jesus left the vicinity of Tyre. And went through Sidon, down to the Sea of Galilee, and into the region of the Decapolis. So let me just share with you what the Decapolis is. I've been to some of the cities of the Decapolis. Deca meaning ten. Uh, uh, polis meaning city. This, the ten cities. There were ten Gentile cities that surrounded the region of Galilee where Jesus preached. Now, uh, one of the things that you see happening during the time of Jesus, you see, well, what, why is this happening? We're in, in Israel, aren't we, Pastor Tom? Yes, uh, we are. At this point in, in Israel's history, it's actually not really referred to as Israel anymore. It's referred to as Judea, okay? Uh, it's where you get the term Jew from, okay? Judeans. Um, and it's referred to as Judea by this point in time, and Rome has already come they have conquered, uh, and one of the things that have actually given way to that is the Greeks came before them. They conquered. You ever heard of Alexander the Great? Alexander the Great comes into uh, Israel, conquers all of the known world, creates this mega empire, okay? And then upon Alexander's death, having no, um, he had a son, Having no actual heir that could have governed, he divides his kingdom into his four generals. And one of his generals takes the area known as the Levant. Have you ever heard that term before? The Levant. The Levant, L-E-V-A-N-T. The Levant is the area uh, where Israel is a part of. It is that Middle Eastern area. And uh, one of the things that happens here is that once uh, several generations after Alexander's generals have died, their descendants are there. And they're ruling, and they really tick off the Jews, okay? They totally eradicate Jewish worship in the temples. They sacrifice pigs on the altars in the Jewish temple in Jerusalem. And if you know anything about the Bible, you know that that is a no-go for a Jewish person. It is the worst, one of the worst things that you could ever do to a Jewish person. It is a desecration of their faith. And so what happens is, is that there is a, uh, it, there is a revolt that comes up, uh, there is a priest that comes and gets so upset at what's happening, and he rises up and he creates a revolt. They kill uh, Greek soldiers. They restore Jewish rule back to the Jewish land. Have you ever heard of the Maccabees? 
That is them. The Maccabees come. They restore Jewish rule back to the Jewish land. And as a matter of fact, they set up this very interesting dynamic that it's almost like a foreshadow of Jesus' coming. They set up this interesting dynamic where the king and the high priest are in one role. And the high priest rules over Israel. Until the times that the Romans come, they conquer all of Israel. And so what I'm trying to establish here again into your head is Israel is not this pure region. There is an infiltration of folks who are non-Jewish, who are not from the area, that have settled down in this area. As a matter of fact, if you go to uh, Israel right now, you'll see this dynamic occur. I spoke a little bit about it last week. It's that if you ever see in the Bible, there can be several terms that refer to the same locale. And so one of the things that you'll see happening is you'll see the lake of Hennesaret, the Sea of Galilee, or the lake of Tiberias. It's all the same thing. So you'll see the lake of Tiberias is that sort of idea of gentle, making the Gentiles, uh, infiltrating that Gentile culture into Israel. And so you've had these cities where these Gentiles live in and around uh, the region of Galilee. And it says here in verse 32, there are some people who brought to him a man who was deaf and could hardly talk. And they begged him to place his hand on him. They begged Jesus to place his hand on him. Uh, Now, let me tell you, this this is really interesting to me. And the reason that this is interesting to me uh, is because they'd seen Jesus do this before. And this was actually very much a Jewish thing to do to lay your hands, to place your hands. As a matter of fact, it later transitions into a Christian thing in the New Testament. They say, if you're sick, get the elders to come pray for you. Let them lay their hands on you. When we ordain people, we lay our hands on them. And so these people had seen Jesus heal before. They're expecting him to heal in the exact same way. And so here's what Jesus does. After he took him aside, so Jesus takes the man aside, away from the crowd, Jesus put his fingers in the man's ear. And then he spit. And he touched the man's tongue. And he looked up to heaven, and with a deep sigh, he said, Epapha, which means be opened. At this, the man's ears were opened, and his tongue was loosened, and he began to speak plainly. And Jesus commanded them, to those who had witnessed the miracle, not to tell anyone. But the more he did so, the more they kept talking about it. And people were overwhelmed with amazement. That he has done everything well, they said. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. So this is really interesting. Mark is is talking about geographic regions. So Jesus comes out of Tyre. He deals with this. In fact, most of this chapter is dealing with how to relate to Gentiles. Because the first part of the chapter, Jesus says, here, this is what makes you clean. This is what makes you unclean. I'm going to show you how to associate with the Gentiles. The next part of the chapter, which we spoke about last week, we invite you that if you weren't here last week, uh, you can go at risenkingchurch.com. You can listen to the sermon, catch up. Uh, or you can also go on our podcast. You can go on your phones, go on our podcast, and you can listen to it there. Last week, he heals a, a Gentile woman who comes to him with an issue. This week, he's healing a Gentile man. So this is all about, this is the awakening. You want to know how you and I got here, how you and I got to serve Jesus, how the gospel reached to us. This is the beginning of that awakening in the hearts of people who are non-Jewish to receive the gospel of Jesus. And so this is actually really purposeful 
that, that uh, Mark is doing this with his gospel. See, he, Mark uh, uh, shows Jesus moving out of an area of Jewish religious culture and into a region of irreligious Gentile culture. He was moving towards and chasing after the overlooked and the overwhelmed sinners. See, this is good news for us because we're also the irreligious. We're also those Gentile people. We're also those overwhelmed sinners. So one of my favorite holidays is Christmas. And people rag on me for this, but I already have my Christmas tree up. I had it up the first week in September. If my wife would have let me, I would have put it up in July. And she's lucky we made a deal that I wouldn't put anything outside yet. But I get really excited about Christmas. You see, Christmas is coming up real soon. And it's the celebration of Jesus coming near to us. And that's exactly the way of God. He moves towards people. He moves towards the wayward, the ones who are lost, the ones who are far gone. Mark 7 32 is really interesting. There are, were some people who brought to him a deaf man who was deaf and could hardly talk, and they begged Jesus to place his hands on him. Think about this man. Put yourself in his place for a moment. He was deaf and he was mute. He never had the opportunity to hear music. Never had the opportunity to hear kids laugh or someone say that they love him. He never had the privilege or joy of singing. Never had the privilege or joy of speaking his opinion. He easily got skipped over and left out. So there are two things that I'd like to point out in this passage this morning. Number one, how Jesus engaged with him personally and powerfully. And number two, how the crowd responds to what Jesus does. Mark chapter 7 verse 33 says, after he took him aside, away from the crowd, Jesus put his finger into the man's ears. Then he spit and touched the man's tongue. You see, there was a huge crowd of people begging to be healed. But Jesus went toward the deaf and the mute man who couldn't beg him like the others. He pulled him away from the crowd and he spent some one-on-one -on -one time with him. You see, you need to know something about Jesus. Jesus is about people. Not just about populations, not just about culture. Jesus is about people. He's about individuals. He's about the individual needs of every man, woman, and child. So what would it have been like to spend one-on-one -on -one time with Jesus? And then all of a sudden, Jesus stuck his fingers in the man's ear, spit on the ground, and touched his tongue. And at first, this comes across as weird. So you ask yourself, why would Jesus do something so weird? You remember, this man is deaf and is mute. Jesus was communicating to the man in a way that he could understand. Come here, John. Come here. You don't understand what I'm about to do. You may not understand who I am. You may have heard about who I am. You're coming to me. And so what I'm doing to you is I'm pointing to you. I'm going to address the issue that's going on here. <laughs> You're good. That tickle, bro. I'm a, I'm, Jesus is letting him know, I'm going to address your issue. I know where your issue is. I'm, I'm pointing to it. You're deaf, you're mute, you may not get what I'm saying. But I'm, I'm letting you know what I'm about to do. Jesus was using nonverbal cues in order to say what he was about to do. Not only that, but he was also touching the very place 
that were his deepest felt needs. See, Jesus understood his ears didn't work, and he was going to fix that. By touching his tongue, he was telling him he understood he was mute and that he was going to change that for him also. See, Jesus was personally engaged with this man in his deepest and his most felt needs. See, this is the way of God towards us too. Mark chapter 7, verse 34, I'm reading from the ESV right now. And looking up to heaven, he sighed, this is Jesus, and said to him, Ephatha, which means be open. Jesus looked at the man and sighed. And we could pass this by quickly, but there is something to this sigh. It was something that declared the intimacy of God. So consider why we sigh. When we sigh, there's something that's welling up inside of us. There's an emotional connection that's happening. Jesus could have easily said, hey, you're healed, and it would have been done, but he didn't do that. He sighed. He was having an emotional response. He was gauging emotionally to what was going on. You see, you need to know something about God. God is not a cold and callous God. He is engaged in the deepest and the most broken places within us. When Jesus saw those parts of this man, it caused an emotional response in him. Jesus looked up to heaven and he sighed. There is a discrepancy, a brokenness between what is happening in the kingdom of heaven and what is happening here on this earth. You see, we don't, and I, I know I spoke about the problem of evil in the world. It was a timely message right before the Las Vegas shootings. But you need to know something. God's intent for this world is not evil. It's one of the reasons why Jesus can pray powerfully in Matthew chapter 6, verse 10, reading from the English Standard Version, ESV. Jesus prays, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In other words, guys, it's, it's not, it's, it, there's some stuff that God intends to do on earth, but it has not yet to be done. And so we need to pray it through. See, there will be a day when the size cease. There will be a day when the kingdom is complete. There will be no more tears. There will be no more deafness. There will be no more mutes, no more sin or brokenness. But that day hasn't yet come. And this caused an emotional response in Jesus. It left him hoping and longing for that day to come. You ever get excited about something, a day that's coming? You know that's coming. Let me tell you, when, when, when I was engaged to my wife, okay, I, I was so excited. I mean, I was engaged for, I think, four years, four or five years, a long time, right? And I was excited to finally get to that day, to that August 2nd day, August 2nd, 2012. Come on, you're not coming soon enough. I can't wait for this to come out. I'm going to have fun. This is my wedding. It's going to be glorious. It's going to be incredible. And I'm sure you guys have felt that way about certain days in your life. And I feel that that is the way that Jesus was feeling in that moment. He was anticipating his coming. He was anticipating the restoration of all things. And he was saying, I cannot wait to the day you don't even know what's coming. There'll be no more tears, no more sadness, no more sin, no more disease. The world will be healed. The kingdom will be established. And I will rule as king. Hallelujah. And this isn't the first time that we see this idea of sighing used in scripture. Romans chapter 8 verse 22 to 23. As a matter of fact, the same biblical word is used here. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who are the first fruits of the spirit, groan inwardly as we eagerly await for 
adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies, what it's saying is that all creation, all creation anticipates the coming of glory. Even you anticipate in your body there is a longing to be with Jesus. There's a longing in us that things would be made right, that our brokenness would be healed. And Jesus felt this too, and so it caused him to sigh. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness. Jesus gets it. He feels our pain. He feels our brokenness. Not only does he feel it, but he engages it. He transforms it. He changes it. It's not just an empty empathy, but rather a conquering compassion. Mark 7, verse 35, and his ears were open, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. Jesus changed this man's reality. His ears were open. He was able to speak. Why does Jesus heal him like this? Wouldn't it be more efficient if he just healed everyone all at once? Wouldn't it be more efficient? I mean, it would look like an evangelical crusade, right? We're going to have a healing service. Get up, everyone. Come on, stand up. We're going to pray for everybody. Everybody's going to get healed at the same time. And I'm not saying that God can't do that. But what I'm saying is that there is an intimacy. See, God isn't necessarily into efficiency. God is into people. He's into dealing with people. And can I tell you something? If you've dealt with people, if you've been in ministry for any long time, if you deal with people on a daily basis, you will know that there is nothing efficient about dealing with people. Nothing efficient about dealing with people. People take time. They take love. They take tenderness. They take a little proking and prodding and a little kick in the butt sometimes, right? See, when you look through the Gospels, you see Jesus doing all sorts of miracles in all sorts of different ways. He touched the untouchable leper. He healed a guy that wasn't even in the same place as him. He healed one blind guy by putting mud in his eyes. He healed another blind person by telling him to go wash in a pool. Why? Because Jesus was personally engaging with each individual. See, we understand the idea that God loves the world. So we logically infer that if he loves the world and we're a part of the world, then he has to love us. It makes sense logically, doesn't it? But it doesn't do anything for our intimacy and our passion towards him. See, I love my children because they're mine. Not because I love kids. I love them each and every one individually for specific reasons. They're mine and I know them. That's how God loves us. Not just because we're a part of the world that he loves. He loves us each personally as individuals. We are his sons and daughters. He wants to engage and touch the deepest places of our needs as individuals. I, I, I get tripped up a little bit thinking about this. I want God to love me and I want to experience his love. But there's a part of me that wants a little safe distance as well. But with love comes vulnerability. When you love someone, there is a level of intimacy where you can no longer hide the broken parts of who you are. My wife took me, busted and disgusted. She knew everything about me. And she chose nonetheless, remind that to her when she's angry at me. <laughs> and she, she chose me to be with me nonetheless. And you'll find that in the intimacy of relationships, when you really get to know people, you'll find out that people are not exactly who you think they are. See, we're afraid. 
when God begins to move towards us in intimacy, we want to keep him at a safe, safe distance. Because if he really sees us for who we are, surely he'll want to turn away and pursue a more worthy object of his affection. We're afraid that if he sees all that we are, he might not love us. See, he already knows all that stuff about you and engages with you in spite of all. Can I tell you, I, I, I just, this illustrates this concept for me so deeply in my heart. When I was a kid, my grandfather always used to say, and please, don't, don't, see, people, people mess with this stuff all the time. You ever heard that statement? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to explain. Cleanliness is next to godliness, right? It's garbage. Throw it away. It's not true. It's not true. What do you say to the broken down Haitian boy who can't clean themselves? person that doesn't have a shower to take. And so my grandfather wanted to always get, my grandparents always wanted to get Old Testament on me every time we went to the church. So they, I, I promise you this, this is the weirdest thing in the world. They would, they would make me take a shower before I went to the church. And they would tell me, using the Bible, that the high priest needed to be clean. And that when you were entering God's holy place, you needed to be clean. So a brand new pair of drawers. And a shower every time I hit up, every time I hit up the church because that was just the way that it needed to be. And then whenever I went to go pray, God forbid I went to go pray at the side of my bed as a little boy in my underwears. That wasn't a no-go. God cannot see you in your underwears. And I, I never, never made sense, the whole concept to me. And I thought, wait, time out. Don't we believe that God is omniscient? That means when I'm in the shower... <laughs> Uh, he knows what's up. He knows what's going on. When I'm in the intimacy uh, of wherever I am, he knows what's up. When, when, when it's going down in my heart and there is war and my emotions are at war, doesn't God know what's going on inside of me? Do you think any of those trivial things matter to God? God knows you. We know that as a factual aspect of the scriptures. Yet even though we know that factually, we don't apply it. We're scared of intimacy with God. See, he knows everything about you and he's engaged with you despite it all. He chose Israel despite knowing that they would fail him in the future. Despite knowing that they would fail him in the present. He chooses you despite knowing your failures in the past. He chooses you despite knowing your failures in the present. He chooses you despite knowing the failures that you will commit in the future. He has chosen you. Mark 7, verse 36 through 37 speaks about how the crowd responds. And Jesus cha charged them to tell no one. But the more he said it to them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And in other words, the more Jesus said, hey, don't do this, keep it quiet, the more they were like, hey, hey do you know what Jesus did? And it started to spread like wildfire. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, he has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. The man came back to the crowd, and the people were blown away. At what had happened. They were filled with astonishment at what God has done. And they proclaimed it zealously. That means they had a passion for what they had seen. When you're astonished, you want to proclaim it. When you're immeasurably astonished, you want to proclaim zealously. That's just how we're wired. The more astonished we are about something, the more zealous we are in about proclaiming about it. My wife has several statements about me. Okay. Uh, one of the statements that she says, every time I talk to a young person and they talk to me about college and they talk to me about a lack of affordability, my wife thinks that I'm recruiter for the U.S. military. Because I'll say, hey, you can go this way, you can go that way, you can take this route, you can go that route, but I'm going to tell you why. 
Because I have been exposed to something that has astonished me. It has utterly compelled me in my innermost being, and so I proclaim it zealously. I love a restaurant in the area. Noches de Colombia. Hallelujah. And, and I love going to that restaurant. And so anybody that asks me, hey, uh, uh, where do you want to go and eat? Or somebody says, I'm going out to eat. I'm going to tell them, you've got to try Noches de Colombia. And you've got to order this in Noches de Colombia because it is absolutely going to be incredible. You're going to love what you taste. Why? Because I have experienced something that has astonished me. And so I zealously proclaim it. Nobody has to tell me to proclaim it. There's a passion within me. It's innate within me. I know that it's good and I want others to have it. They were astonished beyond measure, Mark 7, 37. He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. The word mute is the word alalos. But Mark didn't use the same word when he was describing the mute man. He used another word. He used a unique word, magilalan. The word is only used twice in the Bible. Here in chapter 7 of the Gospel of Mark. And in Isaiah chapter 35, it's actually a messianic prophecy of what will happen when God comes. Let's read that. Isaiah 35, verse 3 to 6. Straighten the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance and with the recompense of God, he will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute, Magalalan, sing for joy. Twice in scripture. See, there's things that we don't really get in the Bible because we have the Bible in our modern English text. But when you read the Bible in its original language, you'll realize that there's certain nuances that are addressed in the scripture. In other words, what, the, what Mark was trying to say is, I'm pointing you back. I'm pointing you back to the prophecy of Jesus. Mark is sending us way back to a prophecy that had happened hundreds of years before. He is saying that that prophecy is happening now. The blind are seeing. The deaf are hearing. The tongues of the mute are singing. God has come near to us. The prophecy of Isaiah was fulfilled. Isaiah said God was going to come with vengeance. He was going to come with the recompense of God. Jesus' first coming wasn't to bring the vengeance of God, but to bear the vengeance of God. To bear the wrath of God. He came to absorb the wrath that we deserve because of our sin. Jesus came and was healing people. Jesus came and was setting them free. He ultimately identifies with us in our deepest felt need. Sin which leads to death. So you may come to me and say, Pastor Tom, I really have this need in my life. There's an incredible need that I have in my life. And here's the reality of the, 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 the issue. Theologically speaking, the greatest issue that any man has on the entirety of the planet is that there is no remedy and no way to deal with the sin that leads to death. There's no way. There's, there's no antidote. There's nothing that we can do. And so what Jesus comes is Jesus comes and he deals with the deepest felt need, the sin that leads to death. And so maybe you're saying, hey, hey, pastor, I am really struggling with this issue. 
I'm going to tell you, let's work through it. But I just want to tell you that Jesus got you, got you covered. He declared victory for you on the cross in Calvary. We're just dealing with superficial issues because the issue of the heart, the issue of sin was already dealt with on the cross at Calvary. Jesus engages with our deepest places, our hearts, and, and, and meets our needs there. He bears the recompense of God so that we might have life. So how do we respond? We see a man healed. We see a crowd respond. We see our own lives healed. The question is, how do we then respond? 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What kind of astonishment should that bring up in us? What kind of proclamation should it bring up in us? Instead, we focus on how we don't feel God. Instead, we focus on how we feel detached from him. We ask how we know that God is near. I want to answer you this morning. We know he is near because he came and destroyed the distance between us and him. At the crucifixion, he destroyed the distance by redeeming and restoring us. At the resurrection, he destroyed that distance eternally. And now we get to be with him forever. I'm going to ask our worship team to come forward. He has drawn near to us. He died for us. He rose from the grave so that we can be with him forever. And my hope for us is that we might respond with immeasurable astonishment that leads to a zealous proclamation of how good God is. So here's the deal. If we are truly and utterly amazed by who God is, then we don't, we don't keep it quiet. We don't keep it within us. We spread it out. We declare it from the mountaintops. We declare it from the rooftops. We declare it to places of power. We declare it in our political atmosphere. We declare it in our community. We go to the hospitals and declare it. We go to the prisons and declare it. That's the idea of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That we would proclaim the gospel boldly to anyone and everyone. That we would proclaim the justice of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Doesn't matter who it is. From the richest of us to the poorest of us. From the least powerful to the most powerful. See, this Sunday I get the wonderful opportunity to get to hang out with you. And I absolutely love getting to hang out with you. And maybe at some point this week I'll get a chance to hang out with some guys that like to hang out by the bridge and get to just hang out with them. And everyone is from a different socioeconomic status. On October 30th, I'll get a chance to hang out with the big cheese, the commander-in-chief, and the vice president and the speaker of the house. Why? To proclaim to them the gospel of truth. We're meeting with several Hispanic pastors to meet with them about issues which are important to us. Knowing that we stand on a firm moral basis in accordance to the scriptures. So here's the idea. The idea is don't let anyone shut you up. Proclaim it from the rooftops.
Proclaim it from the mountaintops. Proclaim it to the guy that's playing basketball by himself in the basketball court. Proclaim it to the senator. Proclaim it to the governor. Proclaim it to the richest man. Proclaim it to the poorest man. Proclaim it all across the world that Jesus has done what he's done. Go from Haiti to Africa to Asia to Europe to South America and Central America to all over the United States and Canada. Let the gospel be proclaimed throughout the whole world. That is our task, church. So you ask, how do I respond to the miraculous healing Savior? By proclaiming just how miraculous and just how much of a Savior He is to you in your life. There is no one who can do it better than someone who has gained that experience of that transforming, transforming moment when Jesus came into your life. And then what ensued, what followed after that, your development, how you grew in Jesus. There is no one that can help somebody out better than you can. There's nobody that can minister to a felt need better than you can. So I've often heard this statement said before. Where is Jesus in the middle of a tragedy? And my response to those individuals is where the church is ministering, is where Jesus is. They are his hands. They are his feet. You'll be happy to know that even in the midst of of the tragedy in Las Vegas, that we have Assemblies of God pastors that are serving as counselors there. As a matter of fact, we were able to get in contact with the chaplain of the Las Vegas Police Department. And there's some incredible things that are happening there. Some incredible healings. You need to know that this is so important. This is why we believe that we're spirit-filled people. Because we're willing to do the crazy and the outrageous as long as it pleases Jesus and never violates his word. I'm going to share with you a brief story before we conclude this morning. We had a pastor friend of mine, an Assemblies of God pastor. He'd been working all night dealing with family members who had lost loved ones in the shooting in Las Vegas. And as he was leaving uh, his workplace, this is why I'm telling you, it's, it's so good to be connected with Jesus. As he was leaving that place, that counseling center, he felt the Lord speak to him powerfully and boldly and said, your job isn't over. And so he walked into, I believe it was the MGM casino. He walked into the casino and started walking around. And there, a husband, uh, or a couple rather, was holding on to each other. He was crying. And he sat down and he said, hey, do you mind if I talk to you guys for a few moments? You never know when Jesus is going to send you on a mission. And he talked to this man and this woman. This man was utterly broken. The reason that he was broken was because he tried to point people to safety as the gunshots were ringing out. And unfortunately, the direction that he pointed them in was the direction of the shooter. So many of those people that he saw alive had now passed away. And so he was dealing with the weight of this guilt. But there Jesus was in the form of this minister, this pastor there, to speak and to breathe life into them. That's what the Holy Spirit is about. The Holy Spirit says, I'm going to disrupt your schedule. 
I'm going to ruin the order that you thought was right. And I am going to send you to somebody who really, 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 really needs to hear from me. That's the power of the Holy Spirit. So I want to pray with you, church. I want to pray that you would get in tune with the Holy Spirit. That you would follow the commands of the Holy Spirit. That you would listen to the Holy Spirit as it speaks to you. And I want to pray that you would proclaim this gospel boldly to your community, to your neighbors, to the folks in in your workplace. If you're afraid to, to share the gospel of Jesus, a great way to start is simply by having a relationship with someone. Take them out to coffee. Invite them to come out to the church. There's invitations there. And here's one of the things that, about me. I don't care if people don't come and worship at this church. I just want them to get connected to a church, a community of faith that will help guide them, disciple them, and lead them. That's the most important thing in my heart. And so would you join me in prayer? Father, you're grand. Your majesty is proclaimed throughout the entirety of the earth. And right now, Lord Jesus, your creation is in pain. From global disasters, natural catastrophes, to the very evil of man, your creation is groaning. Your children eagerly desire their redemption. And so, Lord Jesus, we come to you right now. And we pray as a response to this message this morning that your kingdom might come, that your will may be done on earth as it is in heaven. We pray your kingdom to this place, Lord Jesus. We pray that we would proclaim it from the rooftops, from the mountaintops, that you are the God of healing. You are the God of intimacy. You are the God that cares for the broken, the marginalized, Lord Jesus. And you care, Lord, to proclaim it, Lord, from the the richest of us, the most powerful of us, to the most lowly of us, Lord Jesus. There's no exception of people in you, Lord. You care about all of us equally. So, Lord, we pray that we would have a boldness, a zeal to proclaim this gospel of intimacy, that we have a miraculous Savior. In Jesus' name, amen.